0: Namaste and welcome to another edition of the Bharat Varta Weekly. I'm Roshan Karyapa. I'm joined by Abhishek Paul and Neerav Kunudra to run you through the news and events of the week that was. It's been a rather eventful week on the international front. Uh, There are riots and protests in uh, France. It's still ongoing, in fact. There's also been a historic ruling on affirmative action in the US. There's some progress on the uniform civil code here in India. Uh, There's a draft in Uttarakhand that is ready for uh, uh, discussion. And some good news on the economy front. India's fiscal deficit uh, has... Has started to narrow. All of this and more on this weekly. If this is your first time here on the podcast, we publish episodes on politics, policy, and culture. Do follow or subscribe to us on your favorite platform to stay updated on all of the exciting content that we produce. Hey Abhishek, hey Nirav, a lot to discuss today. So, let's get down to it. France has been rocked by protests since Tuesday, sparking a ban on demonstrations in some cities. Uh, this includes travel warnings as well. The protests were triggered after a police officer shot dead a teenager, Nahil, uh, an immigrant, during a traffic stop in Paris's suburb of Nanterre uh, earlier this week. Interior Minister Gerald Darmanin told TF1 television that crack units from both the police and paramilitary force were among The 45,000 officers deployed on Friday. On Friday, France's largest public library in Marseille was set on fire by the rioters. Abhishek, this seems scary, right? I mean, in and around Paris, there's a lot of rioting happening. What is really happening here? Yeah,
1: so as you said, the latest trigger for the protests was this uh, unfortunate shooting of a teenage boy, right, in a car. I think uh, there are some video clips of the incident that you can see on the internet. Basically, let's say the cop got triggered happy because the people in the car were not following his orders to stop or whatever, right? But I think a single incident of a police uh, shooting cannot be the trigger for such a big backlash, right? I think there are probably bigger societal reasons behind this, right? I mean, obviously, over the years, I think the immigrant population in france has sort of increased right and uh, for whatever reason right uh, they do feel the some sort of alienation in that society and of course politically given france's sort of electoral system what they do is they uh, kind of have these initial round of elections and then a uh, sort of runoff between the top two candidates right and what has happened is essentially you have macron who's been winning last several times who is like a centrist or center-right candidate and his closest opponent has all last two times been marine la pen right who is a far-right candidate quote-unquote far-right right as per western media so but probably the political choice of, let's say, the immigrant communities, et cetera, does not even get represented, right, in the final two because it's like center right versus more far right, right? So I guess uh, they don't have uh, probably sufficient political representation right now in the system. And Macron himself has been kind of hardcore, right, in terms of his claims of saying that. He, he wants to clamp down on Islamist extremism, etc. I mean, France themselves—I mean, as a country—is famous for its very strict secularism, right? Which totally bans or tries to ban as much as uh, possible the public display of religious symbols in pub in the public space and so on. So, probably, I think it's—it looks like you know—it's a big clash of cultures and resentment as well i guess some sort of uh, economic reasons are also probably behind the dissatisfaction in the society right and so all these reasons probably converge right and this has become like a tinderbox in the in this instance but uh, i mean that's what i think but it seems like at least in the initial stages the French state and the police forces were totally not ready, right, to be able to combat or quell down the the violence and the rioting in the initial stages. Maybe there is also a bit of uh, this phenomena where, you know, uh, what we saw in the US, right, in the last few years where there was a lot of protesting, etc., after the George Floyd incident. So maybe that sort of gives... People that, okay, maybe that is the right thing to do, right? Uh, taking, you know, the law into their own hands, and maybe there are not so too many consequences for all that. I mean, it's hard to really know what people are thinking, but that could also be one of the things which are influencing But France was extremely good
0: at integrating people, right? I mean, you know, they've always had migrants from Africa, from elsewhere, from Asia, elsewhere. And they've successfully made them French uh, in some sense, right? Is it the rate of uh, migration that has uh, sort of increased beyond uh, control? So I think the French, for example,
1: will cite the success of their football team, right? Which is very much immigrant community players dominated, right? And they are one of the best teams in the world for the last two, two, two and a half decades, I would say, right? So, yeah, I mean, the French have obviously had some success in the past with assimilation of immigrants. But I think over time, I've seen, you know, news reports in European channels, right, where they say that, you know, there is also some sort of ghettoization, in the big cities that you will see and all that, right? I mean, uh, of course, there is the famous book called Submission by Michelle Hulbeck, which talks about these things, of course, in a futuristic manner, but uh, I mean, it's probably not fully successful as well, right? And there are uh, causes for grievances which lead to a lot of flare ups as well.
2: So just to add to that, like one point, what happens is, you have a lot of immigration where it was assumed that they will take up all the lower end service jobs or construction jobs, etc, where they a shortage of labor. And then as it like grows, if the economic opportunity doesn't grow, it's always taken up by the elites. So there's no path to move up uh, for a lot of these migrants. So football is one. I think football and music and those ones are uh, entertainment and sports is one area, but other areas they do not have that much of uh, opportunity set and usually when you have issues of inflation, unemployment and a lot of other issues are already seething below the surface and all this anger comes up at one point. And last point is, I think in today's day and age, uh, very quick sharing of videos via like multiple social media platforms, uh, lets all these things go viral much faster. In earlier day and age, a small rioting in one particular suburb of Paris would not lead to a library being burned in Marseille. So I think uh, this is going like viral and much faster and uh, some of the leaders are also blaming like uh, social media platforms like snapchat, tiktok etc. So which is also kind of because they feed off viral content. So they promote all this content higher because it uh, evokes like primal instincts in humans. Maybe there are like a lot of other reasons. Hopefully, uh, this situation comes under control soon. And there's like yeah, peace. Uh,
0: hopefully, peace returns uh, Well, elsewhere in the US. On Friday, the US Supreme Court justices ruled that race-conscious admissions programs are un- unconstitutional, effectively ending affirmative action at US universities. The 6-3 decision will have impact far beyond US schools and may force employers to change the way they hire. Uh, Affirmative action first made its way into policy in the 1960s, as many all-white schools began admitting minority students. The ruling came in an appeal filed by a group named Students for Fair Admissions, or SWFA, who argued that race-based admissions programs violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. This move has uh, seen severe backlash from several communities across the country. We've had historic sort of judgments uh, in a series, right? I mean, the ban on abortion, the whole Roe vs. Wade issue, then, you know, the uh, gun violence and this stance on uh, affirmative action, right? I mean, what do you think is happening? I mean, you you have a sort of a democratic government and a conservative sort of a judicial bench, right?
2: Uh, Prior to the 60s, uh, where basically all the elites going to the elite universities were pretty much white and uh, most of them were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And then like the Jewish people started coming in uh, and they were started to dominate in like last century. So that time itself, uh, the US schools have kind of changed from like a test based admission to more like a holistic based on an essay based on background made it more subjective. And uh, then in the 60s where they said that oh, you had to where segregation was removed and you had to admit uh, most like African American people as well as like later on Latino people. So they were like historically disadvantaged communities, so they were given a preference, whereas uh, a lot of Asian-Americans found it more difficult. So I'm talking about like uh, East Asian-Americans like Chinese, Korean, Japanese descent or like South East Asian uh, descent as well as Indians. So if you look at the average SAT scores for Asian-Americans, it was much higher to get in, for whites, it's a little bit lower and for like uh, people of like uh, black and Latino descent, it is the lowest so this also some people were saying was using advancing like earlier elites what they were doing was making the competition less for their kids and once they get into the university they will do better off so this is what equal applications the group which is like an asian american group which was removing discrimination against them effectively right so that was the main clause and uh, asian americans on an average because they come from usually a lot of them come from children of professional immigrants so people are already educated already better off and usually their kids will have better resources or score better on average so this was there so i think uh, this is a very very political debate there is no easy answer on how do you kind of solve for uh, you can say like slavery or years of uh, ill treatment or uh, because of this historical baggage, you can say similar thing is caste-based reservation. Then in no,
0: but uh, so I it, think so. Just a point of rebuttal there, right? I mean, affirmative action. I don't think truly makes amends for historical wrongs in some sense, right? Because then you would yes, just yes, restrict it yes, yes, yes. to, let's say, African Americans or uh, in particular, you know, uh, people whose ancestors were slaves in the U.S. and so on, right? Because when it goes beyond that uh, to include any minority, then it moves beyond that uh, stated agenda.
2: No, no, So I think that's what. There are no easy answers. That's all what I'm saying. What this does for uh, any NRIs in the U.S., I think it's a fortunate timing. If they've got kids who are going to go to college soon, uh, that might actually improve the odds in their favor. Uh, It is unfortunate for uh, some of the African American and uh, Latino communities. But I think there is a second order effect as well. Like there are people who claim like uh, 1 16th or 1 by 32 of like one of the ancestors or was of one race and kind of going through loopholes, a lot of those things. So in a lot of other countries, I think like popularly that I know of like Germany, France and as well as like uh, say like South Korea there all your university admissions are very much test score based there's not a lot of subjectivity so in the US there's still a lot of subjectivity there will be things here and there but I think uh, it has to be race blind so you cannot claim or write one essay talking about race and stuff like that and trying to promote that Uh, you should be getting a slight benefit and for Asian Americans it was the other way around so I'm thinking for like Indian Americans or like Chinese Americans this is slight advantage it is also like very polarizing topic between the republicans and the democrats so uh, it is very much US domestic linked I think the parallels within India is you could say like a lot of the reservation does get abused by some of the elites within people availing reservation but that is there so similar things happen even in the US where you have like some elites or some people with uh, wealthier families but from uh, these communities so Uh, Latino or black communities get way more undue advantage. So uh, that's also there but I think uh, who knows uh, we might have a couple of more election cycles, a couple of judges and then a decade later this might be turned over again. So no real idea but it is a very polarizing topic and recently what has happened is uh, after Donald Trump came in power and the Republicans earlier they were even controlling the senate and the house when Obama was there so that time he couldn't appoint uh, uh, more democrat leaning judges and the judge supreme court after like a few people uh, passed away because in the US judges worked in life and uh, it is kind of the nine member benches become 6-3 republican leaning so six versus three so some of these things have happened i think it's a time of a lot of uh, you would say churning or like friction and. Uh, These
0: all things, issues are coming up. So, you know, viewing both these events in context, right? I mean, uh, what's happening in the U.S. on the uh, race front and then what's happening in France on the migrant front. uh, Is it fair to say that this whole liberal order of the world uh, that kind of held sway for the last, uh, you know, 25, 30 years, right, is uh, starting to see some cracks in its, uh, you know, system and uh, we're seeing like a, a reversion to the mean of sorts?
2: So I actually would like to point out uh, to one uh, book called The Fourth Turning, it's by uh, Neil Howe and uh, William Strauss and uh, uh, Neil Howe has come up with a sequel, William Strauss has since passed away. So they're written in the mid 90s and they say that uh, history goes in about 80 year cycles with four mini cycle of 20 years each and uh, we are in the fourth turning as it is called. So where a lot of uh, social political order changes. The last one was in the US between the Great Depression and the World War II. The previous one was the American Civil War etc. Right. So I think yes, we are going through some of this, these changes and uh, the good thing is that once this ends, we come into a new order and there is like more peace and like a period of calm and stability after it. So uh, I do want to get, uh, if we can get Neil how on this podcast as uh and we can talk more about it uh also i think there are a couple of other judgments as well uh maybe abhishek can add more on those two uh in the u.s so it's been like a,
1: a interesting week on this front i think that the root of everything is like a dichotomy which people are not willing to admit about elite education right so the fact is why is admission to Harvard or Yale or any of these, Stanford, any of these really world-renowned top education institutions, such a big deal. It's a big deal because they are elite and exclusive, right? That not everyone can enter. Only very few people can enter and their value is derived from that. The same thing in India, right? Like the IITs and IIMs, at least the top ones, right? I mean... If you have only 3,000 people entering the IITs, it has a lot more value than if you let 3 lakh IIT students every year, right? The exclusivity determines the value. So that is one thing which the elites don't want to talk about, that it is their elitism which gives the value to these institutions. At the same time, they want to say that we want to make things equal for everyone. So it's... You are trying to have two different competing goals, right? And then fighting about it, right? If you really care about equality, then make Harvard have 100x the number of seats, right? But you won't do that because you want to maintain the prestige as well. So that's the basic sort of challenge in in all this conversation. I think I was reading this uh, Substack post by frank Deboer on this and he talked about this in some detail right where he said that look all this is coming down to the num- low number of seats in elite institutions and then you're trying to square a circle basically right so yeah i think uh, you also said about uh, you know historical reparations and all that so i think in 1978 when the supreme court first allowed affirmative action they clearly said that this was about diversity being a good thing rather than you know trying to repair historical wrongs and curiously enough in this judgment right the judgment says that the military can still do affirmative action so it gave an exception clause to the military which is kind of interesting and puzzling in the same time what it means is that in military it is okay to have you know affirmative action so that more blacks and latinos come in uh, now the cynical people are, are saying that they want more of these guys to be you know in the front lines so that you know they are the true foot soldiers of the american army right so or the sort of more sober take is that no in military you really need societal cohesion right when you're on the front lines and so it makes sense that you have uh you know even senior officers of various types right so that you know there is good cohesion on the ground in an actually mixed race uh diverse army so interesting Views on that, but then people are saying, so you think it is diversity is good for the army, but not good for a corporate. Like, what what does this signal? So it's kind of quite confusing and puzzling. There are no right answers, obviously, as Nirav said. Right, we can keep arguing on both the sides. Uh, So the second big uh, judgment of this week was essentially about overruling or overturning the Biden administration's. Idea of you know forgiving uh, student loan debt, right? And the Supreme Court basically said that it was unconstitutional to do it through the mechanisms they did without going through the Congress, right? And the Democrats do not have the majority in both houses of the uh, both houses at any point in time, right? During the Biden administration, right now they don't have it in the lower house they have it in the senate while earlier it was the opposite so once again the biden administration is kind of trying to think of workarounds for how to uh, you know go ahead with their uh, sort of uh, electoral agenda that they have promised right that they want to forgo uh, student uh, debts uh, the third one this week was uh, it's kind of a niche thing where the supreme court ruled in favor of a graphic designer in colorado who said that he was he did not want to build a, a wedding website for a gay wedding right basically the supreme court came down on the side of religious liberty where they said that uh, if you should not be forced to do something which goes against your religious beliefs uh, so uh, but obviously the other side is that in general the principle is that a business should not be you know discriminating in terms of you know race religion uh, identity and so on so yeah it was a one more sort of win for let's say the republican side or the conservatives in the us right in all three major uh, cases uh, this week and the sixth three supreme court majority that they have thanks to you know the fortuitous timing of various judicial vacancies and appointments most of which happened right under uh, the Donald Trump presidency uh, that's kind of proving to be quite beneficial for the conservatives in the US <laughs>
0: All right. uh, Yeah, so we've spoken about world events for north of 25 minutes now. I mean, since this is Bharat Varta and not Vishwavarta, let's uh, get back to some India news. On Friday, the Expert Committee for Uniform Civil Code in Uttarakhand announced that it is all set to submit its report along with a draft of the proposed law to the state government by the end of July. The union government is expected to use it as a template for drafting its own Uniform Civil Code bill and ruling party members hope to take it up in the winter session of the parliament. The bill's underlying theme will be of gender equality, and will have provisions uh, of equal rights for daughters and sons, and property inheritance, equal uh, duty to equal duty of both to parents, and equal grounds for adoption and divorce in all communities, cutting across uh, religions. Um, Abhishek, this uh, seems to be like a good progress on something that has been long pending.
1: Uniform Civil Code has been on the BJP's Agenda and talking points for I think 35 40 years now, right? And uh, finally, there seems to be some sort of uh, progress, or let's say, uh, evidence of progress that is happening. But obviously, uh, it will get become one of the most contentious, divisive topics in the coming months leading up to the 2024 elections because the opposition is not going to sort of go along with almost any of these points right on paper i think india's intellectual elite should also concede right in probably in private that gender equality uh, equal inheritance for sons and daughters uh, banning polygamy etc all sort of good progressive initiatives or things they will say that basically this is one more uh, case of the majoritarian agenda of the bjp being imposed on the minorities of the country right and basically this will once again devolve into that kind of a debate i think you have already seen many opposition leaders state chief ministers of Various parties already having preempted this and saying that they are not going to allow this in their state or they are going to oppose it. They are not going to let this come in. So I think uh, this is basically going to become one more political hot potato as we head into 2020.
0: Surprisingly, Ahmadmi Party has uh, said that it will support the bill, right? I mean, of course, I mean, they've also added a caveat that in proper consultation and hope that consensus is yeah. built and so on.
1: I mean, it's, it's if, if you think, um, this will be, at best case, it will become like your, you know, agriculture reforms kind of debate that we agree with it in principle, but the way this is being done is not right and then there will be some who will simply say we don't agree with it. it it's basically going to follow that template i
0: think all right on the economy front uh, according to data released by the controller general controller general of accounts cga on friday india's fiscal deficit stood at 2.10 lakh crore rupees for the period of april to may 2023 at 2.1 lakh crore the fiscal deficit for the first two months of the current fiscal year accounts for 11.8% of annual estimates, down from 12.3% reported in the year-ago period uh in the union budget the government aimed to bring down the fiscal deficit during the current financial year 2324 to 5.9% of the gdp from 6.4% um in the last financial year neera this is uh, this is great right i mean even despite uh, a lot of the benefits that you know we have given out during covid and so on uh we are sort of maintaining the discipline on fiscal uh, spending and so on the
2: thing is everywhere fiscal deficits blew up a lot right so in India as well, pre-COVID, it used to be 36 3.8%. Then it's gone to 6.4%. So now we are on the path back for consolidation. The good part is that in India is not facing the huge amount of inflation that the West has seen. As well as uh, India did not overly spend and the, our tax collections have been reasonable. So one of the reasons why this time the fiscal deficit is lower, if you go into the details, is RBI paid out a greater dividend to the government one worrying thing that could come out uh, particularly this year is uh, we could have a weaker monsoon and that leads to probably a higher food subsidy bill or a higher uh, fertilizer subsidy bill uh we will see i think what is there is the good part about like the indian economy right now is it is not just one trick pony not just one thing everything has to like work uh, in one direction going ahead so the budget same also is and it stated that you want to go from 6.4 to 5.9, 5.9 to probably 5.5 the year after and slowly we want to uh, reduce the uh, net amount of fiscal uh, deficit which is a difference between our, our revenue tax collection and the government spending which is financed by borrowing. So uh, I think this is all positive at the margin also I think greater tax collection and a stronger economy allows the government to spend more in the areas which are weaker. So that all like places where we are lacking where infrastructure, capex, etc. So all this is good. I think each month we keep getting some data which remains. So the economy is not completely hot and like uh, roaring at like a very fast pace. But that is also sometimes uh, not good because that pro- obviously will not be sustainable. I think it's a slow, steady progress. Keep going with focus towards your goal and I think that is happening. So one is uh, what happens and uh, especially in a democracy, whenever we have rapid growth, it's, it's a rapid growth in a few sectors and then rest of the people feel left behind and but the aspiration grows because you see somebody else growing so that time the handouts keep increasing so i think we need to maintain discipline on that part i think a lot of a lot of money is spent on uh, like a few you would call them like in a way uh, little more privileged people is like say pensions salaries of government employees uh, where or like in a lot of uh, so those kind of expenses are also quite a large uh, sum In India, a big chunk of the budget is also just interest payments because our total gross debt is reasonably high. So we have a big current account deficit which is we import more than we export. If the PLI schemes work out fine, if the China plus one substitution works, maybe that uh, becomes balanced that our imports and exports for goods are equal. We have a services surplus. A lot of the IT services companies, the SaaS companies, we have a lot of services exports. So these things are positive. And then uh, we have a lot of foreign capital coming in, buying like either via VCs or like via foreign direct investment or buying like uh, Indian stocks. So that is there. So anyway, I think if we keep growing and the growth is reasonably balanced that no one sector feels like really left behind. I think we we had a services revolution uh, starting in the 90s. We hopefully have a manufacturing revolution soon. And if agri laws are amended or agricultural revolution 2.0 is needed. We had one in the 70s but we need another one. So it makes sure that all sections of society are getting prosperous. Uh, and they are seeing things improve for them. So then there is lesser needs of uh, little more handouts and subsidies. And we slowly, slowly wean off subsidies. We have removed subsidies on fuel uh, to a large extent. Uh, diesel used to be subsidized heavily. So, slowly we keep removing the subsidies because every sector can uh, stand on its own feet and uh, that is one way to reduce fiscal deficit. Basically, we need a lot more growth which leads to a lot more tax payments so that the government doesn't have to borrow way more than uh, and there's some rationalizing in government spending or maybe spending in areas where we are deficient. I think Infra is
0: clearly one of them. The fuel subsidies, especially I think uh, the government has to be lauded, right? I mean, uh, because it's a very unpopular thing, uh, you know, to uh, not give out subsidies on that front. And they've been holding uh, forth for quite a while. Uh, well, all right. Uh, this past week also marked the 48th anniversary of the emergency declared by former Prime Minister Indira Gandhi in 1975. Uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, paid homage to those who resisted to quote the dark days of emergency in a tweet saying the emergency days remain an unforgettable period in Indian history. Um, other Union Ministers like uh, Smriti Irani ji and Hardeep Singh uh, Puri ji also tweeted about the topic. With that, we come to the end of this Bharatwarta Weekly. Uh, If you've stayed with us uh, as long and you've enjoyed the content, don't forget to rate and review us on all your favorite platforms. Uh, It'll help more people discover our content. Um, Next week, we have a couple of uh, episodes coming up. Uh, We have uh, uh, a very interesting conversation with Neil Borate, who writes on personal finance for the Mint. Uh, He's published a book on Rakesh Junjanwala, of course, the big bull of Dalal Street, uh, who sadly passed away about a year or so back. I will be talking to him today, and we'll publish that conversation uh, upcoming week. Uh, we also have uh, an interesting episode with uh, Professor Vaidyanathan uh, of I am Bangalore. Uh, he's written a book on caste as social capital, uh, which is a very interesting topic. Again, uh, both these episodes are something you can look out for. Um, you know, follow us on uh, social media to stay updated on all of the latest content. Until then, uh, from Abhishek, Nirav and myself, thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe, take care and Jai Hind.